I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. On this episode, I talk with Celeste Watkins Hayes about her new book, Remaking a Life. Isn't that nice? In her new book titled Remaking a Life, Celeste Watkins Hayes explores the HIV and AIDS epidemic, but she explores it through the lens of women, women who were able to shift their entire lives from a place of dying from AIDS to living with it. We open our conversation discussing a woman named Dawn. She was diagnosed with HIV in her early 20s, and she's really had a remarkable transformation. So you open the book with a story of a woman named Dawn, right? And she'd been diagnosed with HIV, and which later turned to AIDS, when she was really young. I think she was in her early 20s or her mid-20s when she got the initial diagnosis. How did you meet her? How did you come to work with her? So in the Chicago area, when I started interviewing women way back in 2005, I had a couple of ideas for how I was going to find women living with HIV. I went to uh, social service agencies that were working with people living with HIV. So there is a network of AIDS service organizations in the city of Chicago. And I also recruited women from private physicians. But Dawn, I met because she was a participant in a support group meeting where I was recruiting women and the support group meeting was run by one of the larger aid service organizations in the city. You know, there's a quote from her in the beginning of the book, which was really striking. It just really stayed with me. And you kind of centered the first part of your book or actually the entire book around this. So she said, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. Yeah, that is quite a quote, right? So for me, it was really stunning because, you know, it raises the question, how can an illness that's responsible for the deaths of millions of people around the world be responsible for saving Dawn's life? So that is the central puzzle that the book begins to look at. And when I interviewed her, it was very clear that she had a history of trauma. She had experienced childhood sexual abuse. She had a drug addiction. At one point, she ends up homeless on the street and surviving through sex work. And it had a number of things happen to her. And she had many instances in which she had tried to transform her life. But it wasn't until she came into the AIDS community, the HIV AIDS community, where she really got access to a safety net and she got access to healthcare assistance, some modest economic support that allowed her to get back on her feet, but more importantly, deep social support and really an on-ramp to civic engagement that really taught her how to use her voice as a woman living with HIV that her life really turned around. So what Don was really telling me was it wasn't the disease itself. It was the HIV safety net that had saved her life. It was that community of support that had saved her life. It was the public policies that undergird the HIV safety net that saved her life. So really what Dawn is saying, quite simply, is if it weren't for a safety net, I'd probably be dead. That just blew my mind when I when I read that. And I was just wondering if you had kind of the same reaction when you started pulling this picture together, because, you know, for the longest time, HIV and AIDS, that diagnosis was considered a death sentence. But when I read that and I read her story and saw this transformative arc that you paint in the book, I was like, wow, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way, that, you know, all of these social safety safety nets kick in when people hit their lowest points in life. And I just and I I just have so many conflicted feelings about that. Absolutely. And I did as well as an author because I didn't want to pathologize Dawn or, you know, really suggest that there was some kind of deviance on her part. Really what she was saying is something that all of us feel and experience likely, which is if it weren't for people in my life and institutions in my life and public policies in my life that helped me when I needed the most, where would I be? So when I was able to look at what she was saying in that context, I could grapple with it. But then there's a perverse irony because, you know, many of the things that happened to Dawn, we would hope that a safety net would have stepped in earlier. My next question after kind of grappling with why would she say something like that was why did it take an HIV diagnosis for her to be able to get access to the support that she needed really from her early 20s? And why wasn't until 10, 15 years later, after she had had so many instances of trauma, after she had had so many instances of crisis, 
that she was able to get the support that she needed. And it turns out that what qualified her was an HIV diagnosis. And in the book, I grapple with the question of, you know, what's happened to our safety nets in this country? Why is it that we have demonized people in need so much that we assume that any form of assistance is a handout is a hammock rather than a trampoline? Why are we so resistant to the idea that all of us need some kind of support? And for many of us who are in the middle class and the upper middle class and the upper class, our safety nets are invisible to us. They just kind of are. We just assume that we've got family, we've got friends, we've got savings, we've got all these resources that we can use when crisis hits. So we take it for granted. We don't really think about it. But people who are on the margins economically and socially don't necessarily have that. So they've got to seek it out. So if the difference is that they've got to seek it out and that they sometimes use public support or the support of nonprofit organizations that raise private dollars, but they nevertheless end up in a transformative place, why do we demonize that? If people are able to turn their lives around, why do we demonize that? If people are able to take care of their families, why do we demonize that? If people are able to survive, why do we demonize that? And the HIV community just made a very, very good case about their right to exist and their right to survive and their right to get access to services that would be transformative and help them to live. Yeah, you know, that just breaks my heart. And, and you're absolutely right that these things that happened to her, if you look at someone like Dawn and you look at the, the you know, the arc of her life, you can't help but look at it through a lens of empathy, but somehow that's been removed from our culture and we do demonize them. You call this collection of experiences that she had when she was really young as injuries of inequality. What does that mean? Absolutely. So I define injuries of inequality as those big and small wounds to our personal, family, and community well-being. And they result from interpersonal, institutional, or systemic violence rooted in unequal power dynamics. So the idea is that a person, an institution, or a set of systems can wield power in a way that negatively impacts our health and well-being as individuals and as communities. So I say that in the book, that injuries of inequality produce and are produced by a compromised ability to protect oneself from harm. So for those who are highly resourced, they have a much stronger ability to prevent traumas and harms in their life. They can't prevent all traumas and harms, but with resources, they can prevent many of them. Inequality produces a situation through those unequal power dynamics where people have fewer and fewer and fewer resources at their command to be able to protect themselves from harm, to be able to protect themselves from trauma. So they find themselves much more vulnerable to those situations. So one of the threads that you discovered in your work and in your research was that many of the women who were diagnosed with HIV and AIDS were victims of early childhood sexual trauma and sexual violence. What is the difference, the practical difference between someone that you would have spoken to in your group versus someone who was, you know, more affluent, grew up in the suburbs? Those markers of inequality, what's the difference in the experience that they had that would lead one woman to behaviors that might lead to her contracting HIV and another woman? So the seeds, when I look at Dawn, were in terms of her HIV diagnosis at 25 years old, those seeds were planted in some ways in childhood. So she was abused by uh, two family members and immediately it was a stepfather and another family member. And what Dawn decides at a very young age is that she can't tell anyone. She's worried that if she tells her, her biological father who was still in her life, he would kill the men involved and she would lose him to prison. She was worried that her mother wouldn't believe her because one of the men was her stepfather, and that would raise all kinds of complications for their relationship. So Dawn learned at a very early age that silence was the best strategy to deal with the issues that she was grappling with. But she had to cope. It, there, there ha it had to come out in other ways. So she started abusing drugs and alcohol. It leads to an addiction by the time she's 19. 
And from there, um, she is put in many, many more situations of sexual risk and drug risk. So she uses intravenous needles at some point. Um, We know that HIV can exist in intravenous needles for up to 28 days. So we know that transmission between needles and in terms of needle sticks, sticks and sharing of needles is a risk factor for HIV transmission. We also know that as Dawn had to feed that addiction, she began to lose contact with friends and family members as they got frustrated with how she was living her life. They didn't know the precipitating incident about the trauma. They just knew that Dawn had a drug problem. And as a result, she was a drain on her family. So after she had exhausted the support of her family and friends and they had had enough, she ends up on the streets. And she ends up in what I call the sexualized drug economy, which You know, we think about the drug trade, much of what fuels that trade is money, but also what fuels that drug trade is sex. So the exchange of sex for drugs, um, sexual relationships between users, sexual relationships between dealers and users, all of those become part of Dawn's context. And that is another instance of heightened risk. And then in terms of her needing to find economic resources to live, she begins to sell sex. So whether it is clients that were coming from the suburbs and um, utilizing her services to people who were much closer in proximity, she is participating in sexual behavior with a larger and larger group of women. So one of the things that I really wanted to highlight in the book is how those early instances of trauma taught Dawn that silence was the best strategy, that self-medication was a viable strategy, and that over time, it obviously proves to be highly, highly detrimental in terms of her isolating herself and using the sexualized drug economy to survive in ways that absolutely put her at risk. So what I found among the most marginalized women, those who were economically marginalized, socially marginalized, who had histories of addiction, they tended to have a whole host of experiences and traumas. And HIV was just one of the things that they were grappling with. In fact, I sometimes heard women say, HIV is not the worst thing that I've ever dealt with. And when you listen to Dawn's story, you can see how someone would make that kind of assertion in terms of the numbers of incidences that may have happened in her life. When we look at more resourced women, predominantly middle class women, what happened with them is that the HIV diagnosis was really an interruption of a trajectory that they already believed was firmly established, firmly solid in terms of keeping them in the middle class, keeping them protected from social stigma. These were women who were upwardly mobile, who really never imagined that they would be diagnosed with an illness that is so highly stigmatizing. So they may have acquired HIV from a blood transfusion that they experienced in the 1980s. They may have uh, contracted HIV from a husband or another sexual partner. They may have had early experiences with drug histories that are now you know, 10 and 15 years old, but nevertheless, in that process, they acquired HIV. So that notion of interruption was really interesting for me to explore with women who are much more um, uh, solid in terms of their economic and social survival. So for them, the struggle was very, very different. It was really about how do I maintain the status and privilege that I've worked so hard to create and build and maintain? Because for them, the most troublesome thing for them was their HIV status getting out, being known, and then losing access to friends and family members and social prestige, but also private health insurance. And the worry that they had about losing their jobs and given that, you know, pre the Affordable Care Act, HIV counted as a pre-existing condition. So the notion that they might be denied coverage because of their HIV status loomed very, very large for women who were more solid economically and more stable economically. So it's just really interesting to hear that contrast for women in terms of I've had many traumas in my life and this is just one of them versus, you know, I may have had struggles in my life, but this by far is the most traumatic event and it has completely interrupted the trajectory that I believed that I was on. 
Right, right. You know, I want to talk about how in the 80s and 90s, HIV and AIDS was framed, because it's very different from, I think, how it's framed now. I mean, the early narratives characterize it as a gay man's disease. And I remember that era very, very well. And I, and I think that's changed quite a bit. Has the demographics actually shifted or has the perception shifted? Well, I think the perception has shifted in some important ways. So the first perception is, you know, this notion of HIV being a gay man's disease, I think is still in existence. And women kind of had to fight back against that in the sense that, you know, getting access to services, getting access to resources sometimes proved difficult because many of the services that were built out in the 1980s and 90s really targeted gay men. So women started to mobilize and create their own organizations and their own services and really push for policies that focused on and centered women um, in the 1990s in really, really important ways. So that perception that I think still persists um, still bears out in the lived experiences of many women living with HIV. The other thing that is kind of a change in perception and, in fact, is the reality is the movement from a death sentence to a chronic illness that HIV has, has moved along. And that's really due to several medical advances that have happened. But we can't forget that those medical advances, our, our ability to identify medications that prolong the lives of people living with HIV and even are at the point now where they significantly reduce, if not eliminate, transmission sexually, where we now have medications where if you're on PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylactics, which prevents you from acquiring HIV, or if you already have HIV, if you're on treatment and the treatments that you are on, you're using so consistently that you have an undetectable viral load, it is the the risk of transmitting HIV sexually is um, virtually eliminated. But the challenge with that is that not a lot of people know that. So that as the illness is moved from a death sentence to a chronic manageable illness, and as it's really become a place where we can end HIV transmission due to the medications that we have available, women still in their social lives experience people who don't know that, don't believe that, and therefore still stigmatize them significantly and are reluctant to enter into relationships with them. You know, we heard stories of women who still have family members that are, you know, throwing away the dishes after they use them because they're afraid wow. that the women's saliva is going to transmit HIV. So there's still a lot of ignorance out there about how the disease is transmitted. And not a lot of people recognize how far we've come in terms of being able to, to stop transmission. So women are still battling that that social stigma, although the perception has has changed over the years. Right. So what's the percentage now? I think um, it's over 50 percent. Women make up over 50 percent of the people living with with HIV or AIDS. Is that in the world? Yes. In terms of uh, the United States, it's approximately one in four people living with HIV in the United States are women. But absolutely globally, it is over for 50 percent of the population living with HIV are women. Is there a connection with the framing of drug use in inner cities in comparison to the opioid epidemic? And I know that they're framed differently. You know, one of them is seen as a moral failing or, you know, it's criminalized and the latter is seen as more of a health crisis. Right. So does that difference in frame mean that the social safety nets that are being put in place for the opioid addiction, for instance, help prevent the spread of HIV and AIDS in those communities? You know, unlike what happened with drug use in the inner city communities, you know, at the beginning of the epidemic, because there was no social safety net in place to address all of those injuries of inequality, the spread of HIV and AIDS went kind of unabated in a way. Yeah, and it's very interesting because one of the things that we're finding is this interesting conundrum in terms of the way that it drug use is framed in urban areas and particularly inner city communities is very much around a criminal justice frame. So the idea is that these are people who need to be locked up. Um, these are people who are contributing to crime. And really, the solution is to lock them up and to uh, not focus on necessarily the treatment aspect of it. What we're seeing in the opioid crisis is a very strong push around framing this as a public health issue. So that's a whole nother set of tools to bear. Rather than locking people up, it's about getting people access to health care, getting people access to drug treatment, 
getting people access to services. So that's one of the big differences in framing that we're seeing between, say, the crack epidemic and the opioid epidemic. On the flip side, because so many urban areas, when you look at New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and San Francisco, because those are areas that have traditionally had a very mobilized LGBTQ population, they have built up an infrastructure around HIV that has proven to be quite important and effective. So what those communities do have more access to are the services, again, for people living with HIV. And it really brings us back to this unfortunate irony that was illustrated in Dawn's story in the sense that although Dawn was a drug user, it was the HIV diagnosis that got her access to services because it put her into that network, that network that's been very effectively built out in a lot of areas throughout the country. What we're finding with the opioid crisis is that that network is not available and does not exist. So when we're talking about rural communities, when we're talking about communities in the South, when we're talking about small towns that are perhaps 80 to 90 to you know 120 miles away from central cities, they are experiencing their epidemic is, yes, framed as a public health crisis, but the infrastructure isn't there to respond to it. So the challenge there is how do you get the resources to those outskirt communities, to those rural areas, to those areas in the South that have not had the time to build up the level of infrastructure that we see in many of our major cities? Right. And and because it's treated like a criminal justice issue in a neighborhood where Don would, would have grown up or lived, that just adds to presumably those injuries of inequality, right? Because that's additional trauma just piled on to the trauma she's already experienced. Absolutely. So let me tell you a story that I think very much illustrates exactly the point. So many of Dawn's friends and network members when she was in the sexualized drug economy, the people that were kind of with her when she was in the drug trade and in um, sex work, were cycling in and out of jail. And what we know is that the jail and prison population has significantly higher HIV rates than the rest of the population. What was happening was that people were acquiring HIV in prison but and in jail. But the research suggests that instead what you're seeing is that people are acquiring HIV AIDS outside in neighborhoods and communities. They're entering incarceration facilities and the health care that they're getting access to very significantly. So you have some people who are getting access to treatment and in fact are able to perhaps even get to undetectable viral loads because they're getting access to treatment. But when they're released, the follow-up becomes a real challenge so that when they're released with undetectable viral loads, which is wonderful, their limited treatment opportunities once they get back to their communities means that the HIV kind of takes hold again and they become very much at higher risk for transmitting the virus to other people. So that cycling, that movement of their HIV numbers from up and down uh, really creates a situation where they can be at greater risk of transmitting the virus once they enter, return to their home communities if they're not continuing treatment. So we think there's a, a problematic dynamic there. We also know that in some jails and prison facilities, the care and treatment for people living with HIV is not what it should be. So that people's viral loads are spiking and getting quite high when they're incarcerated. Then upon release, they're going back to their communities with very high viral loads that have been unchecked for all the time that they were incarcerated. And when they're coming back to their communities, they're coming back to the men and women in their lives. And they are also potentially transmitting HIV. So that idea of locking people up really becomes a moment where the gas pedal kind of gets pushed in terms of um, rising HIV rates. Now, contrast that to a city like Austin, Indiana. Austin, Indiana is in Scott County. It is a city that experienced an HIV outbreak of 191 new cases in uh, 2015 and 2016. Clearly a public health emergency. When you look at the dynamics of, of the city of Austin in Scott County, many of the same dynamics that you see in inner city areas, limited access to health care, 
high rates of unemployment, buildings that had been boarded up, higher rates of drug use. And essentially, that got treated as a public health emergency. So we saw the CDC and other organizations go into that community, push then Governor, now Vice President Mike Pence for an emergency needle exchange, making it very clear that this was mission critical. Vice President Pence, then Governor Pence, was highly reluctant to do that. And what changed his mind was actually the county sheriff and law enforcement officials that said, we don't want to lock these people up. They need a needle exchange. They need access to services. They need health care access. And that is what we need to do to address this epidemic. And that's essentially what happened. Austin, Indiana treated it as a public health crisis. And we're starting to see the HIV numbers get under control without essentially warehousing people within the criminal justice system to do it. You know, what's really interesting, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that one of the states that also not only did they reject the needle exchange program, but they also rejected parts of the ACA that would have improved health care there? Absolutely did. So there was a lot of conversation around Austin, Indiana did not have to happen. That epidemic did not have to occur because of the lack of access to health care. The only HIV testing facility was shut down um, because of lack of resources. The, the next closest facility was five miles away. A lot of people didn't have access to transportation. There was testing available in the city's Department of Public Health. But the building was located next to the police station. So imagine if you're an opioid user who thinks I need to get tested for HIV and the building where it's held is right next to the police station. Um, In some ways, you can't make these things up in terms of (laughs) it being a deterrent. So that kind of one two punch with the policy that was hitting Austin, Indiana, the, the lack of expansion of Medicaid through the Affordable Care Act and the rejection of it but also the very clear resistance to starting a needle exchange program really allowed that epidemic to proliferate. But what challenged it and what thwarted that epidemic was the community coming together to say, we've got to address this. We've got to have a needle exchange. We've got to treat this as a public health issue. The answer is not criminalizing people. And I will point out that Austin, Indiana is 93% white in terms of the residents living there. Yeah, you know, that that that's really interesting. I just want to point out that that's a really small city. I think there's something like fewer than 5000 people in that city. Absolutely. Is that right? Yes, correct. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So it, so we're talking about a small town. And part of, you know, to my point, the struggle that you find is there's not going to be a huge infrastructure of a social safety net there like you'll find in larger cities. So essentially what they've been working on in that town over the last several years is trying to build that infrastructure up, trying to create more healthcare services, more social services for people, helping them with some economic assistance. It's still an economically depressed town, but there's an awareness there that there's got to be a stronger safety net if people have any chance of being able to navigate those social dynamics. Right. I mean, you know, it can't be a mistake that those collections of policies existed because they're all about shaming people and, you know, demonizing the people who are struggling with drug addiction and, you know, who have been diagnosed with HIV. Putting the testing location right next to the police department, rejecting health care. Very much so. Very much so. And, you know, it raises the question Because, you know, when we think about it, that is a major investment in terms of the health care costs of what it's going to require of that community to pay for HIV health care for the lifetimes of those people living in Austin, Indiana. It just begs the question of can we understand that sometimes providing the services at the beginning from the outset, thinking about things upstream rather than downstream is really the more economically efficient way to go. So thinking about Can we provide drug assistance services? Can we think about needle exchanges? Can we think about services that we can provide to people early on that actually may be more cost effective in the end? Right. And, you know, that's especially true in cases where women have had early childhood sexual trauma, like Dawn, for instance. Right. And I just kept thinking about that. Like if she had had a safety net, an emotional safety net, not necessarily one, you know, within the system, but just somewhere to land into this culture of silence that, you know, perhaps her life would have been completely different. 
Absolutely. And I think it's so important that we take up this question of sexual violence. The Me Too era has really opened up the conversation in a lot of different ways and highlighted the ways that in workforces and a variety of different venues, people are finding themselves in these predicaments where the power differentials are such that they are, they are violated and they feel like they are unable to speak out. But I think that the kind of unspoken part of Me Too that we've also got to talk about is the childhood sexual trauma piece of this. And the ways in which, for many people, that violation happened very, very early in life. And it really set the stage. We know that survivors of childhood sexual trauma are more likely to have future challenges with drugs and alcohol, are more likely to succumb to addiction, are more likely to have higher numbers of sexual partners are more likely to engage in condomless sex as they come into their teenage years and adulthood and are often using drugs and sex as tools of self-medication to deal with what they've experienced in the past. And too often we look at the people who have had those experiences as adults and we want to hold them to high standards and accountability and we want to criminalize them and we want to basically point to their deviance. But we don't necessarily look at what were the early incidents that really in a lot of ways set the stage Not to say that it's determinative because not all survivors of those experiences go on to have addiction issues and all of the things that Dawn was grappling with, but we certainly know that there's a correlation in the relationship. So it really raises the question of, can we have a conversation about how does Me Too expand to protect the youngest survivors and the youngest people who have not kind of fully fleshed out their lives yet? And what kind of prevention and what kind of interventions can we make so that people are able to heal from those kinds of incidents or never have to experience them in the first place? Exactly. talk about the role of respectability politics, which I think is almost exclusively used, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, in the Black community, right? That term, at least that phrase. So what was the role of respectability politics in, you know, not allowing the safety nets that many of these people needed? Well, it, it's really interesting because when the HIV AIDS epidemic hit, In the early 1980s, when we came into a public awareness that we were facing an epidemic, we often assume, and it had a white face, but people of color and particularly Black people were being diagnosed with HIV from the earliest years of the epidemic. And essentially what happened, and Kathy Cohen in her book, Boundaries of Blackness, documents this so well, is that the Black community was really struck with this challenge around respectability and the idea that if the community took up HIV, it would have to also take up all of the other issues that are related to the public framing of HIV. So talking about homosexuality within the Black community, talking about drug use within the Black community, talking about high numbers of sexual partners, promiscuity within the Black community, talking about sex work within the Black community, talking about the ways in which sexual networks make it so that within Black communities, HIV can proliferate in a community that is racially and economically segregated because the virus spreads through networks. Having to take that on and having to talk about that was really problematic for Black media, Black politicians, Black church leaders who did not want to take up an issue that suggested deviance, that suggested immorality on the part of Black people. There was a real reluctance to do that and a real fear that it would feed into the stereotypes that were so prominent about Black people that had been used to to push Black people back from progress, that had been used to justify segregation, that had been used to justify violence against Black people. So the idea that we would embrace and take on 
these kinds of non-respectable issues, if you will, these issues that for some point to deviance and immorality, to, uh, to think about putting together political mobilization around the issues that were adjacent to HIV was just highly troubling for a lot of Black leaders who had previously adopted a very different kind of agenda, an agenda that was rooted in the civil rights movement, an agenda that was rooted in demonstrating respectability, an agenda that was rooted in demonstrating that we can be twice as good as Black people, that we can play by the rules and demonstrate that Black people are worthy for advancement. So the solution became silence in a lot of ways. The solution became to not talk about HIV in Black communities. The solution became not to politically advocate for the needs of people living with HIV. And the solution, unfortunately, also became to exclude and further marginalize people living with HIV and those who were at higher risk. LGBTQ populations within Black communities, low-income people within Black communities, folks who were using drugs within Black communities, the solution really became to ostracize and marginalize even further in some ways. So that, Kathy Cohen argues, really undermined some of the early efforts to target HIV and then juxtapose that with the fact that a lot of federal agencies, including the CDC, were late to the game as it relates to addressing HIV in communities of color. We had documented cases, but there wasn't necessarily the level of investment in services. There wasn't the same level of investment in science and discovery and medical resources and medical attention and medical discovery for people living with HIV in Black communities and people at higher risk. So whether it was internal to the community or external to the community, when you look at government agencies and we look at um, aid service organizations that really focused on white gay men and didn't always want to open their doors to people of color or to people who weren't gay men, we see in the ways in which the community, meaning the black community, really had an HIV effort that was thwarted in the early years and was really small and allowed the epidemic to unfortunately gain a foothold that we are still working to loosen within Black communities. Right. That's exactly my point. I I would imagine that that had a hand in suppressing early activism around HIV and AIDS in the Black community. So I guess my question is, is did the late start in activism in black communities help shape the demographics of who's living with AIDS today? Meaning, are there more black women, for instance, living with AIDS than there are gay white men percentage wise because of the elements that serve to delay activism in black communities? Oh, absolutely. African-American women and Latinas represent 30 percent of women in the United States, but they account for approximately 78 percent of women living with HIV. We also know that African-Americans are 12% of the U.S. population, but they're 44% of people living with HIV and people recently diagnosed in the current year. So one of the things that is really obvious when we look at the demographics of HIV is that people of color are disproportionately impacted. So that face of HIV of being white gay men is actually in many ways inaccurate. Yes, it's true that white gay men are grappling with the disease in very high numbers. It is the case that gay men are the group that is the most disproportionately impacted still. Transgender women are also highly disproportionately impacted. But when we think about kind of an intersectional lens, it is really critical to think about the ways in which race class and sexuality and gender combine to keep the most marginalized people the most disproportionately impacted by the epidemic. I also want I want to stay on this topic of framing because there was this effort, I think it was in the 90s, to kind of paint HIV and AIDS as kind of an every man's disease. Everyone can get it. Celebrities were diagnosed, you know, there was Magic Johnson, there was Arthur Ashe and, you know, a few other people. What was the aim there and what did it actually do to the movement? 
Well, it's really interesting because in some ways that was a clear strategy to reduce the stigma of HIV. The idea that as an infectious disease, HIV can happen to anyone. And we remember the kind of public service announcements from the 1980s and the 1990s. And when we think about how the disease is transmitted, that is absolutely true and correct. And it was a very useful strategy to reduce the stigma, to stop othering or reduce the amount of othering that was happening for people living with HIV. But the reality is that the burden of HIV has not been borne equally or randomly across the United States population. HIV has largely functioned as a concentrated epidemic in the United States. It's had disproportionate infection rates among sexual minorities, among black and brown communities, among low-income people, and among transgender women. So there's an inherent tension in the it-can-happen-to-anyone narrative because it underemphasizes the critical role of inequality in risk exposure, in how we approach prevention, in who gets access to treatment, in people's lived experiences living with HIV. And the challenge with that it can happen with any one approach is that it doesn't allow us to attend to the socioeconomic, racial, and gender dimensions that really call on us to think about inequality and really call on us to question why people who are in the minority are disproportionately bearing the brunt and the burden of this illness. Why it is that people who are already powerless are bearing the brunt of this illness and, and grappling with it still to this day, despite the medical advances that have happened. So the third thing that I'll, last thing I'll say about the, the challenge with it can happen to anyone is that once people fail to see people in their immediate circles with HIV, then they might assume that the epidemic is over. So if it can happen to anyone, but no one that I know is grappling with HIV, the epidemic must be over and the problem must be solved. And instead, if we think about who are the most vulnerable in our society and how are they disproportionately impacted, then it requires that we not take our eye off the ball in ending the epidemic. Because you may not know someone who's living with HIV, maybe you do. But even if you don't know someone who's living with HIV, that doesn't mean that we're still not grappling with a serious epidemic. We're still seeing 38,000 new infections approximately every year in the United States. We still have 1.1 million people living with HIV in the United States. And we can't forget that despite our medical advances and the very, very effective medications that have turned HIV from a death sentence to a manageable chronic illness, we're still dealing with people who have to take medications for the rest of their lives with all kinds of side effects and implications for other systems in their bodies. So part of what we're paying attention to now are the long-term effects of these medications. So we can't take our eye off the ball. And we can't believe that just because we don't see those public service announcements telling us that, oh, it can happen to our neighbor next door. And just because we don't know a neighbor next door who happens to be living with HIV, that doesn't mean that the crisis is over. Right. I mean, but it, did it really curb the spread? The reason I'm asking is because the people who are being held up as examples in those cases, they weren't people who were living in these high risk groups anyway. Right. So the chances that we would have two author ashes or someone in his group being diagnosed with HIV is pretty unlikely. Absolutely. And, you know, I often point to the case of Magic Johnson as well. In the sense that it's fascinating that magic has served as a real focal point for a lot of people, particularly within Black communities, about the epidemic. And there are ways in which Magic Johnson has been such an important role model. And I have women who talk about when they told their families that they were living with HIV, their families didn't stigmatize them because they said, oh, you have what Magic Johnson has and Magic Johnson is doing fine. And he really proved to be an important resource for helping people understand that you could live and, and live well with HIV. But we also can't forget the enormous amount of resources that he was able to bring to the table for his own care, that he had access to health care and continues to have access to health care, that he has access to medications, that he has access to a safety net. 
So, you know, the kind of next wave of the battle as it relates to HIV is making sure that despite our medical advances that allow people to take the pills and do quite well, we're maintaining the services that allow them to focus on their health management. Because, you know, when Dawn was struggling for all those years, when she was thinking about where she was going to sleep on a given night, or I think about our middle class women who that problem was solved, but they were dealing with debilitating stigma that, you know, really prevented them from socially engaging with people that, you know, put them into serious depression where um, some were even suicidal. It's really important to remember that it's the services, it's the community, it's the HIV safety net that proves transformative for people and that really aids in people's survival beyond the medications themselves. Yeah. In the early days of the epidemic, I know people had to take loads more medicine, right? Maintaining your health was a lot harder. And I just couldn't imagine having to keep up with that regimen along with living with sexual trauma, for instance, or you know, having housing instability or even being homeless in a, in a lot of these cases, you know, and having to think about taking all of this medicine. It just seems impossible. Absolutely. At one point, Don was on 25 pills a day. And they had to be taken at all different points, some in the morning, some in the evening, some with food, some without food, some had to be refrigerated, some not. So can you imagine, I mean, even those of us who are well-resourced being able to maintain that regimen, but if you don't have resources, how in the world are you able to do that? Luckily, we're at a place where there's, it's, it's one pill a day for many, which is an amazing medical advancement, but still... If you don't believe that your life is worth saving, are you going to take that pill a day religiously and consistently? If you don't believe that people are going to love you, if you don't believe that you have a right to care and to self-care, are you going to be consistent with that medication? So really, the, the bottom line of my book in many ways is this movement from marginalization to meaning. The ways in which the HIV community pulls women out of their marginalization, provides social support, teaches them how to tell their own stories and to use those stories to help other people. How that movement into meaning making in women's lives proves to be transformative for them to become invested in saving their own lives and the lives of the people around them. One of the things that really stuck with me was about the trajectory of their recovery is that in many of the programs, and you describe this in your book, but many of the programs seem to include some element of, of blame, right, as part of their process. Mm. You know, and I, and I found that kind of heartbreaking. Mm. For instance, there was one place in the book where one woman admitted that she was guilty of taking from people, you know, that that was what drug abuse was about. It was about taking from people, you know, and they were encouraged to, to say things like this. And it seemed out of place in the arc of their recovery. You know, primarily, because, you know, one of the things that leads to success in these recovery and transformation projects is self-acceptance. And this just seemed counter to that. Mm -hmm. And self-love. Absolutely. And it sounds, you know, it's something that, you know, as a researcher who focuses on inequality and public policy, the idea of, you know, how do I write about self-love and self-acceptance was something that I had to really think about. But that was absolutely critical. I mean, you could have you could have safety nets and services, but the question was what explained the women who connected to those services and the women who didn't connect to those services that were in existence. And the answer I came back to was this notion of self-love and self-acceptance. This idea that women had to say, "I am worth saving." And I am worth saving for all, despite all of my trauma, despite all of my struggles, despite who I was and what I did during difficult points in my life. And one of the things that I also think it's important to think about is the difference between personal responsibility and personal accountability. So in the personal responsibility frame that we hear oh so often in our conversations about safety nets, even, you know, our welfare system now has the term personal responsibility in the name of the act, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, the 1996 welfare law that President Clinton signed into law. This idea that there has to be this kind of finger wagging to get people to do the right thing. The idea that people are inherently blameworthy 
for the circumstances in which they find themselves, for the idea that they should be under deeper levels of surveillance and should be punished if they make a mistake or fall out of line or have personal struggle. You know, one of the things that I think is really part of our poor relief system right now, whether it's our welfare system or some of the ways even that we're beginning to frame the Affordable Care Act, which is really unfortunate and problematic, is the idea of you must have done something to deserve being here. And that personal responsibility is we're going to hold you accountable. And if you don't follow the rules, we're going to punish you and we're going to criminalize you. What I found that the HIV community does quite effectively was to think instead about accountability that is grounded in self-love. So the idea of you are worth saving and your life is worth saving because you have something to contribute. So how do we make sure that we're safe? How do we make sure that we are protecting ourselves? How do we make sure that we are doing the things that we need to do so that we'll be here in five or 10 or 15 years? So the messaging of sex positivity, the idea that sex is not inherently problematic and shameful, it's really about how do we have sex positive lives that are safe, the idea that you have something to contribute and a story to tell and something to teach other people was really part of the culture of the HIV safety net that I observed that was quite remarkable. So yes, part of that is women holding themselves accountable. And sometimes I think it would veer into the kind of personal responsibility, I deserve punishment and blame phase of things. But then other times women were just being honest and saying, I made some mistakes. I did people wrong. I did myself wrong. And I need to make some changes, right? And I need to hold myself accountable. But what's so important about that is I don't think that we should use that as a lens to determine through public policy who's deserving and who's not deserving of public support. And I think too often that's the lens that we use. Is this person worthy of blame? Is this person guilty? And if so, if they've done anything that falls outside of perfection, they don't have a right to public resources. They don't have a right to use nonprofit resources. And I think that that's inherently problematic because we're all flawed. We've all made mistakes. The difference is that ours don't necessarily get displayed in these ways because we're not having to go to these agencies and ask for support in ways that marginalized women find themselves. Right. Yeah, that whole system, that the whole system of bureaucracy, it seems like it's intended to further humiliate them, you know? Oh, absolutely. And you'll find in many agencies, my first book was on the welfare system, you know, caseworkers were really there to prevent fraud and to make sure that people were not freeloading and that people were not cheating the system. So the ways that they approached people was absolutely from a place of prove to me that you are not defrauding the system as opposed to let's think about what it is that you need and how we can help you get to where you need to be, how we can get you to get back on your feet. Because I didn't talk to women through my previous work on the welfare system or my current work on HIV, where women wanted nothing more but to enjoy living off of the system. They wanted to be able to take care of their families. They wanted to be able to take care of themselves. They wanted to contribute. They wanted to move up the economic ladder. But we know that unfortunately, in our capitalist system, they're going to be winners and they're going to be so-called losers, those who find themselves at the bottom of the ladder. And if we're going to have that system, we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do to provide people with a basic level of support and sustenance such that they can exist, such that they can take care of their families and such that they have a chance of upward mobility? Right. It just seems like that transformative bubble seems like it would be hard to maintain or to sustain, you know, in our culture where misogynistic thinking and messaging and, you know, anti-blackness and misogynoir, frankly, are kind of on the rise. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things that I think is really interesting is the ways in which the women that I talked to would not allow themselves to be erased from the picture. And they wouldn't allow people to use their past against them. So when I think about activists like Gina Brown is a very good example. She's an HIV AIDS activist out of New Orleans who I write about in the book. And Gina had a history very similar to Dawn's 
early sexual trauma, homeless on the streets, deep in a drug addiction, was diagnosed with HIV and really had to struggle with getting clean and kind of surviving for her kids and surviving for herself. Gina Brown recently served on President Obama's Advisory Council on HIV AIDS. So during the Obama administration, Gina was informing the administration on HIV AIDS policy. And part of what my book grapples with is how does someone do a complete transformation within one lifetime? How do you go from dying from all of those challenges to living with where you are surviving to thriving despite where you are informing the president on what we should do about HIV and healthcare policy, particularly in a context of violence and anger towards people of color, towards women, towards marginalized populations. And the thing about Gina, which is so much the case when I think about a number of women that I talk to, is their absolute refusal to allow themselves to be erased from the story, to say, despite what I've been through, despite the struggles, despite the challenges, despite the marginalization, my life has meaning, I have a voice, and I have something to contribute. And they have pushed back against that royally. It's not to say it's easy. It's not to say it doesn't get hard, but they have stayed in the picture. And they've had some significant policy gains. When you think about the Affordable Health Care Act, much of how that policy was informed or some of the models that were looked at were the HIV safety net because it was recognized in Washington that the HIV community, despite serving a disproportionately marginalized population and set of communities that are marginalized, nevertheless, has pushed for policy. When you look at the Ryan White Care Act, when you look at policies that provide housing opportunities for people living with HIV, they have maintained their level of access to health care services and basic human needs because they have not been afraid to tell their story and they have not been afraid to advocate on their own behalf, despite who was in office. You know, that reminds me of this Ayanna Presley quote. I think she was the one who said, you know, people who are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And that makes so much sense in this case. Absolutely, because they have so much to teach us. You know, yeah. there's there's something to be said for people who have lived the experience, who know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And, you know, even when I approached my research, you know, I had this frame in my mind of, oh, I'm going to document the stories of women living with HIV. And I know they're going to be, you know, stories of trauma and struggle. And that is part of what the book is about. But talking to the women who are living those experiences, they said, but my life is much more complicated than that. And you also need to tell that story, too. You need to talk about how I've survived despite You need to talk about how I've managed to raise my kids and their wonderful human beings, even with an HIV diagnosis. You need to talk about how I've become a political advocate for women living with HIV, despite my history of addiction and participation in sex work. So what I really wanted to do in Remaking a Life is tell a very interesting, compelling story about the nuance and complexity that exists in the lives of marginalized populations, to not allow their experiences to be flattened, to not allow their stories to be distilled down into pathology, and to really show that despite the challenges women have been quite successful. I wanted to talk about the coalitions between white gay men and poor black and brown women to not allow our current politics and our current conversations around political mobilization to focus on how we can't work together, to really point to an example of if you look at the HIV community, that is about coalition building. That's about people talking across difference and still coming together despite the tensions and the conflicts to be able to push an agenda forward that lifts all boats. And I wanted to capture that. And I wanted this book to be an example of how it's possible for these diverse communities to work together. This book really changed a lot of the way that I see things around HIV and around social safety nets. And so, you know, thank you so much for your work, Remaking a Life. And thank you so much for for everything you've done. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And it was wonderful to be on the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please help us create more episodes like this by leaving us a review on iTunes or subscribing to our podcast in iTunes. Also, please follow The Electorate on social media. 
We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and that's at Electorette. Thank you so much again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.